Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. Hey, I'm Christian Sager. And I'm Joe McCormick. And all three of us are in the same room at the same time. Yeah, first time it's happened. Yeah. And it's a good time for us all to get together because uh, the mailbot that we use on this show uh, has been out of service for, I think, a couple of months now. Old Arnie? Yeah, Arnie. We're going to have to reboot the robot. We're going to have to make sure that it imprints on you guys as uh, as new hosts because uh, we want to avoid any unnecessary uh, uh, complications. Yeah, except didn't I hear that we're going to have to reboot it under the new name Carney with the C standing for Cartesian Doubt, the newest feature of the mailbot? Yes, yeah, because, uh, I mean, en- enough programming has changed on it. It's going to reject its old name. I'm not a roboticist. I don't know the particulars on it. But, uh, but yeah, we need to, and we also need to make sure that it has all three of the uh, laws of robotics installed this time. Yeah. I've heard enough about this around the office that I'm kind of nervous. I mean, it hasn't attacked other uh, podcasts before. Well, that, that it, is why Scott Benjamin had to have all his limbs sewn back on. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. why. Okay. Well, yeah. And that's where he got the tail? Well, there were extra pieces at the end. It's like Uh, Ikea, you know? You go to assemble it. There's something missing. What can you do? You can't put it back in the box. I'm always afraid to ask him. You know, he's a personal guy. He doesn't doesn't like to talk about stuff like that. Yeah. All right, so let's let's see. Flip this switch. Okay. Joe, can you get that one? Yeah. All right. Uh, Now, Christian, can you pull that back, that metal contraption there? The big one? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay. Whoa, what is with this saw blade? Okay, whoa, whoa. That's, um, That's a different feature. Okay. Push that back in. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Now, see this uh, metal flower thing opening up there? It looks yeah. kind of like the inside of a, you know, the, the head portion of an Iron Maiden. Why is it presenting us pills? Um, well, those are optional, but you do need to stick your face into this contraption real quick. This reminds me of those robots in that movie Runaways. Oh, well, that that's the uh, predecessor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Prototype for Arnie. Yeah, but hold on. So you put your face in the flower. Yeah, and then it's going to imprint, and then we can then it'll be able to actually deliver the listener mail to us, and we can uh, read through some of them. <laughs> I, I think you did. It I think it got show. him. Oh wait, did it? Do it again. <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. I, I'm not putting my face in that thing. Oh, well, you wipe it down first. Okay. There's a spray. Right. <laughs> All right. I think they got it. Look, it's folding up and everything. Huh. Uh, seems to be coming online. All right. Now we just have to see if Arnie responds graciously or if it activates its lasers. Okay. Yeah. All right. Are, are you ever going to explain the saw blade? Or? Um, that feature may become necessary later on, but oh, right now, okay. no, don't worry about that. All right. There he is. All right. You're accepted. Arnie seems to be operating... Uh, more or less uh, along design parameters. Carney. Carney, yes. Sorry, Carney. I got your name wrong. All right, Carney, you're online. Bring us some listener mail. What do you got for us? Hey, guys. I'm a newer listener of HSW and a big fan of your podcasts and all the HSW shows. You get me through long, lonely train rides to and from New York City and where I live in New Jersey. I just listened to your episode on stigmata and heard you reference the wound on the side of Jesus as happening during his carrying of the cross, which I don't think was the case. This is this is absolutely accurate. I, I got this wrong in the episode. Uh, not being overly Christian myself, but raised in such a manner with a Bible-hungry aunt. That's 
sounds awful. I have always known the story different. After my hunch and some quick research, I think the wound was given after he had been nearly spent. The story I think that I, means dead. Yeah. The story I know goes that he had been hanging for hours and hours long after typical people who are crucified would live. The Roman centurion was seen as a do-gooder giving Jesus mercy and making sure he was dead after his marathon of torture. The unnamed soldier is also credited with saying, quote, truly, this is the son of God. Oh, so that's where that comes from. I didn't know that. Uh, not trying to step on toes, just a big fan reaching out. Keep up the great work. Thanks for reading, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, somebody on Facebook also alerted us to uh, that mistake on my part. I believe I somehow had it in my head that the spear wound was inflicted as he's carrying the cross to the crucifixion. But yeah, I believe, uh, I hate to call it canon, but I suppose it is. Canon is that he was uh, what Michael said. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's sort of considered the or the literary role it plays in the narrative is it's the, the coup de gras, you mm-hmm. know, it's the final mm-hmm. blow to make sure everybody knows, okay, he's really, really actually dead. So it's like it's a compassionate thing from the way that Michael's uh making it sound that the this the soldier didn't want him to suffer any longer. Um you know, I don't know if I ever heard the, that exact interpretation of it. I always thought he was just doing his job, like I, I gotta get this body all the cross. Do So I don't know if the gospel narrative is like that? is much. No, not necessarily. I, okay. I don't think the gospel narrative is much trying to get in the head of the Roman soldier. I think it's more serving the purpose of demonstrating to the reader that Jesus was really dead. Gotcha. So the reader wouldn't be wondering, like, oh, maybe he wasn't dead. Oh, like he would pull like a. I almost just said a huge Game of Thrones spoiler. I'm going <laughs> to keep that to myself. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, I, I also want to point out uh, Bible Hungry Aunt that uh, mm. could be referring to grimoires. Oh. Uh, they did talk about individuals who consume They did. Books, they ate the book books. in order to gain its power. Yeah. That makes sense. So maybe that's what was going on there. All right, Michael, thank you for writing in with, uh, with that uh, little bit of clarification there. Uh, what else do we have uh, to read here? All right, so next it looks like we've got one from Jonathan. And Jonathan writes in, Being a member of an older generation than yourselves, I've just started listening to podcasts but have become addicted to stuff to blow your mind. I was intrigued by your two-part podcast on religion and technology. That was techno-religion for the masses, parts one and two. And he's, uh, he continues, In researching a book, I came across a very unusual object in the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia. It is basically an astrolabe manufactured in the mid-16th century in Germany. The gnomon of the sundial aspect of the object is a turbaned man, indicating either the intention or origin as a time-telling and geolocator device for Muslims. It was brought to America in the late 17th century, probably by a group of German pietist mystics, and later fell into the hands of Benjamin Franklin, Hmm. who founded the American Philosophical Society. One of the most intriguing features of the device is an engraving on the bottom with two illustrations and a reference to a passage in Isaiah where God turns back time. The device purports to explain the miracle. When set up as a sundial and filled with water, the refraction of the shadow, quote, throws time backward, unquote, by the same amount as in the miracle in Isaiah. This was, however, before the principle of refraction was, if not known, at least codified in Western science. This feature of the device was demonstrated in the 1970s. Then he gives a link to an article that he actually wrote about this object, which he says is referred to at the APS as the Schlisser dial after the smith whose name was on it. 
Then he says, keep up the good work and adds that he will miss Julie. Well, thank you for that email, Jonathan. This was really interesting. Indeed. And we'll make sure to include a link to that uh, article of his uh, on the landing page for this episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind dot com. Because uh, certainly in that episode, we went into the, um, the, the role of the astrolabe. Right. Uh, this uh, kind of uh, convergence of technology and religion. Uh, so uh, this is definitely uh, de- definitely uh, flows in with what we talked about. Totally. Mm-hmm. All right, here's one that comes to us from a, from listener Art. Art writes in and says, Did I hear Robert say that he had decided to stop eating octopi because of their intelligence? Maybe a little bit because they're kind of cute playing with things. I can see why one might come to such a conclusion. But knowing you are voracious learners and reasonably rational decision makers... Thank you. Uh, I, I felt I had to write you to make sure you had all the octo facts in hand to make this protein-limiting decision. You are aware that octopi are not sh- shy about cannibalism. They are very territorial and regularly attack and consume fellow octopuses when they trespass. The trespassers admittedly are their competition, too. But honestly, can you still feel bad about eating octopuses now? They eat each other. You're welcome. Enjoy your sushi sashimi next time. Thanks again, guys. Keep up the great work. Best art. No. So, okay, what, what was the rationale behind why you wouldn't eat I, octopi? I think this was referring to the episode about grizzly bears from outer space. Uh, yes. We were talking about different kinds of alien intelligence and how, uh, at least in my opinion, octopuses display an intelligence that doesn't register as human, but that does register as so- Significant and interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. that's underlying, you know, the, some of the problems of thinking about alien intelligence because we end up holding it up to the the model of human intelligence, oh, which sure. uh, you know, the, even life on Earth illustrates that there there may be other types of consciousness going on. All right. But, well, I mean, I can see why you would say that. Then, um, wait, are you a vegetarian? No, and okay. and, I'll, and I'll be the first to admit that I'm my my stance on what I eat. And what I don't eat is uh-huh. kind of hypo- hypocritical, and I guess a lot of people, you know, a lot of people have varying degrees of hypocrisy when it comes to this sort of thing. But sure. like, I, I still eat occasionally. We eat pork, uh-huh. even though the pig is a pretty smart creature, and right. um, you know, who am I to say you go in my belly, but the octopus is off limits? Yeah, like maybe I give yeah. the octopi. Uh, some sort of privileged status because it's so different, because it's this kind of alien creature. So know? art's making an ethical argument that because octopi are cannibals themselves that it's okay to eat them because they eat each other that he's presenting that as a as a potential uh reason that i could hang on to and use to (laughs) eat octopus i would counter that i would present you with the option of would it be okay to eat people then if they were cannibals by this, yeah, by this rationale, it okay. would be perfectly acceptable, provided that well, they are a cannibal that would eat me. Not yeah. necessarily. Art might be going on a sort of like a double qualifier model where they have to be below a certain level of problem-solving intelligence or IQ threshold, and they uh, have to be evil. Gotcha. <laughs> or cannibalistic. I actually, in response to Art's email, I went and looked into this because I was like, oh, I've never heard of this before. But I found an article on Scientific American talking about octopus cannibalism. And I just want to read this quote from it that I found. It says, These amazing, if occasionally gruesome observations reveal that octopuses chose an octopus meal, even if there were plenty of other, less feisty food options, such as mussels. <laughs> but as the authors point out, even the more docile mussels required more energy to extract than a smaller octopus might to get the same amount of meat. An octopus meat, the scientists note, is higher in protein per ounce than that of mussels. Additionally, the octopus predator, after bringing back its prey, 
prey sealed off its den opening with rocks. This allowed the oh. eating octopus to feed in relative safety and privacy, another advantage of a single large catch over having to crack and carry smaller bivalves. So my reaction to this was, Art, you're incredibly correct. This is evil and scary, <laughs> and this is serial killer type behavior, but also I am now even more impressed by the intelligence of the octopus than I was before. It's smart about what it eats, and it knows how to eat in privacy. Yeah, it sounds like it has a real like return on investment style uh, <laughs> approach to its eating. Well, yeah. you know, it, it lives in a different economy, and it lives in the economy of of uh, of the ocean you know mm-hmm. so i mean if we if we evolved to thrive in such a dangerous uh you know, habitat we would likely be a little more cannibalistic as well so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. much like uh you know the world of mad max yeah yeah it's just a, it's a different world it's a, it's the wild west down there and sometimes you got to eat your own kind so all right b- before we move on from art's letter clearly uh, i don't know i don't know if you guys know what's the correct plural pronunciation of octopus is it, it octopi or octopuses it's octopi if you want to sound like a jerk okay it's octopus <laughs> and i'll stick with that if you just you know want to sound like a normal person so is octopi is correct i don't know but oct- oh, oh i you know? i always say octopuses per the james bond film <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah uh I feel like this just came up when we wrote a script for a video recently about octopi, octopuses. Anyways, if anybody out there knows, write us and we'll answer it in the next listener mail episode. (laughs) I'm curious. I mean, I'm sure we could just Google it, but I, in principle, refuse. Yeah, not on air. Yeah, I I prefer grammatical corrections from uh, a thousand listeners instead. (laughs) That's how I learn. All right, what else do we have from the old uh, mailbot here? Okay, this next one is from Brian, and it is also in response to our Grizzly Bears from Outer Space podcast. And Brian says, Hey guys, I listened to your episode on Grizzly Bears from Outer Space, or more specifically, the theorized shape and size of any potential aliens we may encounter in the future, and I think I have a bit of information that will put some of your more worrisome listeners at ease. I present to you the rocket equation. And then he gives a little equation. It's a... DV equals V times LN, and then parentheses RM. It seems to be important that one of the Vs is capitalized. Yes, that's right. Uh, and so That's my input on math. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, and he explains, he says, V is a rocket's effective exhaust velocity, limited by precepts of chemistry and nozzle design. DV is the delta V applied to the rocket, which is the controller of how high it reaches before it runs out of fuel. And RM is the ratio of the rocket's initial to final mass with fuel and then without. So does that make sense? Like as the rocket ascends, it loses mass and it becomes easier to propel itself. So it's got to have enough fuel on board to carry not just the rocket, but the fuel. Okay. Um, so he continues... Plug in some numbers and you get the same figures that had NASA smashing their heads against the wall for years in the late 50s. A solid fuel rocket requires a 96% fuel by mass composition to impart enough delta V to reach Earth's orbit. That's crazy to think about. Yeah. Uh, that, that was my comment, not Brian's. But <laughs> Brian goes on. The important thing to note here is that the necessary delta V to leave a planet and thus make space travel possible is determined by its gravity. It's easy to see that if Earth's gravity were just a little bit higher, space travel with conventional rockets would be all but impossible. Any rocket we built would simply be too heavy to reach orbit. 
This puts Earth at the top of the range of planetary masses in which the gravity is high enough to hold an atmosphere but low enough to allow for space travel. If there were any other spacefaring civilizations out there and their technology is anything like ours, which chemists, physicists, and mathematicians suggest it most likely will be at our level, there is a virtual certainty that their planet's gravity will be lower than ours or else they would be trapped on their world, unable to sail to the star ocean. Hmm, okay. Regardless of their size or shape, it is practically guaranteed that we, not they, are one of, if not the physically strongest space-capable species in our galaxy. Long story short, humans are heavy worlders. Stay heavy. (laughs) All right. Yeah, thank you so much, Brian. This was a really interesting and informative email. And Mm -hmm. we did, uh, we did acknowledge in the episode that uh, definitely some other space and astrobiology experts had pointed out about the study we talked about in that episode that it, it sort of was, while it was good reasoning, it was reasoning in a vacuum. And that once you add in sort of all these real world variables to think about like gravity and other things, that might definitely change the parameters of the equations that Fergus Simpson used. Yeah, so now I'm not as concerned about space trolls. Uh, I'm more concerned with like space hobbits, space goblins, uh, the Ferengi space for sure. Yeah. So thank you, Brian, for that really interesting email. Yeah, totally. It was a good one. Okay. Also, Angelo writes into us from Facebook. So keep in mind for future listener mail episodes, you can write into us on Twitter or Facebook or at the email, uh, mm-hmm. blow the mind at howstuffworks.com. Even Tumblr. And Tumblr. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Angelo writes, really liked both episodes. By the way, the movie Stigmata was not so much about demonic possession, although the trailer would lead you to think so, as it did, uh, it led me to think so. The female character actually gets the Stigmata because she had in her possession the rosary of a stigmatic priest who died, and I guess transferred his soul in the rosary. Oh, and it also had something to do with the Gospel of Thomas. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I barely remember that movie, but that, I mean, obviously he's seen it. That sounds about right. So, so like what we're talking about here is like, uh, um, St. Francis's rosary falls into Patricia Arquette's possession. She's holding onto it and the soul of St. Francis enters her, thus making her a stigmatic. Okay. Bestowing upon her the, the wounds of Christ. All right. Well, that's, that sounds plausible for the movie. Mm-hmm. I never saw that movie, though I remember the trailer for it, and I think at the time I was offended by it. Why? It was a different time for me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I, yeah, but right before we did the Stigmata episode, I rewatched that trailer, and it does seem like she's kind of possessed or something, but... Um, yeah, I feel like I might have been in junior high, and you know you're in junior high, there are all these changes happening with your body, um, <laughs> wounds are opening up in your hands. <laughs> That sort of thing. So it, it hits yeah. a little close to home. Yeah, it was. It was definitely made for adolescents. That's for sure. All right. This one comes to us from Brooke. Brooke writes in referring to uh, an old episode having to do with uh, dinosaurs mating with each other. I think it was called Tyrannosaurus Sex. Uh, she writes in and says, nothing astonishing or astute here, but today I saw two FedEx trucks backed up to each other, hatch to hatch, and the first thing to come to mind was cloacal kiss. So um, <laughs> thanks for that, I guess. In all seriousness, love the podcast, especially with how much of it there is. I've been listening for months, and I'm still years behind in loving every minute. Thanks for all the laughs and learning. Uh, so that explains the older episode. I'm, okay. I'm always a little um, surprised and or horrified. When I hear that listeners have discovered the podcast and are starting at the very beginning, <laughs> working their <laughs> oh. way up. I mean, not because the old episodes are bad, but it's yeah. like, 
if you start with the current stuff and work back, you'll hopefully, you know, start it at its best, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand that. That's kind of my approach to podcasts. That's when, when I start them. Uh, I know I have friends who do that, who go back and listen from the very beginning to shows that are like you know, 200, 300 yeah. episodes in. Uh-huh. I went back and listened to the very first episode of this show right before uh, uh, joining the program. Oh, when, amazing when, infestation. Yeah. Right? When it was you and Allison, mm-hmm. Allison, who still works with us here at How Stuff Works. Yeah. So. Yeah. That was a good one. I liked it. Yeah, I actually uh, ended up looking it up recently because they did the whole 10 years of iTunes thing. Oh, yeah. And so we, we pumped out the very first episode of then stuff from the science lab before mm, we actually became right. stuff to blow your mind. So yeah, it was kind of cool to, to look back on it. Oh. Uh, but no, the old episodes are great. But, you know, you're still – so much of your time with this show is spent sort of finding what that show is. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it wasn't even called Stuff to Blow Your Mind back then. So it was That's a slightly true. different show. That's true. Was it called Stuff to Blow Your Mind during the cloacal kiss? It was. Okay. This was definitely a Stuff <laughs> to Blow Your Mind era. That was the cloaca era, if you will. Is that why Julie has the, uh, what is it, Cloaca Boulevard on her desk? Yeah, if I remember correctly, uh, listener Aaron sent uh, that in to her. She, we each got a road sign. She got Cloaca, and I got Sandworms. Oh, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, we've got another one here that looks like it's about the Stigmata episode. This is another Facebook message. This one's from Nick. I was listening to your pieces on stigmatics, and your special treatment of the subject material is anti-intellectual. There is absolutely no difference between the founding of these beliefs and modern comics. He means comic books, not uh, stand-up comedians. Stuff you should know. That's not us. Uh, there is no one single account of Jesus written by anyone who could have known him. If you know something I do not, please do an episode and inform me. I am not arguing to be anti-theist, but show this subject no more reverence than facts in a DC comic. I I don't get thinking like this. I mean, it seems to me that whether or not you believe the mythology is like literally true, wouldn't it be interesting to learn about where it came from and the story behind it? Yeah, I mean, I think I think I actually responded. Uh, you did. To this there one. was there was a back and forth exchange yeah. on Facebook. Yeah, and but I mean, one of my responses was like, "We'd love to do stuff on characters in DC comics. Yeah, like, absolutely. you can have just as much fun and, and learn just as much by." Looking at uh, the comic book characters, looking at uh, superhero powers and applying real world physics and, you know, real science to that. I've actually done a podcast like that on the other podcast I do at How Stuff Works, Forward mm-hmm. Thinking. We did an episode a while back where we basically looked at all the X-Men and said, mm-hmm. okay, uh, what rating of plausibility do we give to all their powers? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I, c- I can understand where he's coming from here and that, like, he listens to the show as a science podcast and expects a certain amount of uh, I guess, as he put it, intellectualism. Um, but, but yeah, I think that what we try to do is, is you know, bring a connection between things like pop culture or, or other, you know, um, beliefs, whether it's stigmata or, for instance, like when we were talking earlier uh, in the other podcast about people cutting off, literally cutting off their nose despite their face because of the term to spite your face, uh, it, it just seems to me like, we we sat down and we looked at the stigmata as a actual occurrence. What could possibly have caused it? Whether it was disease, self mutilation, uh, psychosomatic situations, what have you? Uh, and yeah, let's do it. We should the, for for Nick. I think we should do something on DC Comics. Uh, I 
I'd be happy with anything. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, ultimately we approached uh, Stigmata, even though at the heart you have a purported supernatural event. You know, mm. We approached it from a scientific standpoint, yeah. psychological standpoint, um, you know, and also just looking at just the way we think about these things from a, you know, a mythic standpoint, uh, yeah. how it factors into worldview. And uh, you know, that's, that's all part of what we do here. So. Yeah. I- and, and, you know, to say, too, I, I think that he uh, was disappointed that we uh, respected Stigmata objectively uh, within the episode, that we didn't outright say, oh, this is all lies. Uh, in fiction. Like that, that wasn't in the title. Stigmata <laughs> well, I is don't lies. Know. I don't know. But, but <laughs> No, I'm sorry. I, I do appreciate the feedback, Nick. Definitely. It, it stirred some interesting back and forth on Facebook. And we love to discuss these uh, topics with you. So even if, it's, if the topic, even if the discussion is based, uh, you know, around uh, criticism. And believe it or not, the three of us do, you know, legitimately read these and talk about them amongst ourselves. And, and sometimes we'll respond on Facebook. Sometimes we'll we'll bring it here on the listener mail episode and talk to you about it directly. In fact, we're, we're going to kick this hornet's nest right again by going back to uh, the podcasts that we did about the intersections of religion and technology. So, uh, so bring on the criticism of supernatural topics. So this seems to be the common intersection here, though, right? Is is uh, when we add religion plus science, we stir a hornet's nest. I mean, obviously, that's yeah. a that's a thing people on the internet yeah. have opinions about. Okay. Well, yeah, people have you see you see criticism from uh, people on the atheistic side of things. Mm-hmm. You see. Uh, more religious folk uh, criticizing sometimes, and it, it just kind of kind of varies. But I mean, ultimately, that's because there's a lot to discuss there, you know. Yeah, so. and that seems to be like the the fact that you're saying that it comes from from all angles means that like we're we're coming close to having a dialogue, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, considering that this podcast is broadcast to a mass audience, mass audience, not massed audience. Mass audience. <laughs> it's like uh, eyes wide shut. Yeah. Everybody's just listening to podcasts. <laughs> Okay, well, anyway, uh, we have a couple of fairly long ones, but I do want to read them because they're really great listener mail. Uh, so these are from Gillian or Jillian. How do you pronounce that name? I usually? think it depends because uh, the way that I always heard Jillian Anderson, which I believe is how she pronounces it. But then uh, the woman from Community, it's spelled the same. Hers is pronounced Gillian. Well, okay. I love Scully, so I'm going to say Jillian. Okay. So Jillian writes in to tell us. I've been following your podcasts for a few years now, enjoying the eclectic mix of weird subjects, but I listened with heightened enthusiasm to your recent podcast on religion and technology. This is a subject that has been of great interest to me for some time, perhaps because, as an atheist, religion is a fascinating anomaly to one not participating, and was the focus of my dissertation at Glasgow School of Art two years ago. Oh, she might be a Gillian, then. Like in Scottish pronunciation, maybe there's a hard G. Oh, okay, it could be. It's not Jalaskow. You're correct. <laughs> uh, or Jalasco, however you say it. Anyway. Uh, Is it Lionel Jalasco? Gajillion oh. continues. Uh, my research was long, extensive, and really enjoyable. This is, after all, a complex area that requires an understanding of many quirks and areas of human behavior. But where your podcast focused mostly on the historical use of religious technology, my area of inquiry focused on cyberspace. Humans have always sought to consecrate whatever space it is that we're currently occupying or entering. Uh, Buzz Aldrin is reported to have taken self-administered communion when first walking on the moon. I, I think is I that actually right. Yeah, I mm-hmm. thought about I mentioning about this in the podcast, but we didn't have time for it. I think. Huh. Uh, but anyway, she goes on to say. 
And we're doing the same thing with cyberspace. Characterized as a purely mind space, cyberspace does offer a new intriguing platform for spiritual exploration. I love that you included prayer wheels in your exploration of technology. Buddhism is one of the established religions that is integrating most enthusiastically with technology and cyberspace. You can, in fact, turn your computer's hard drive into a prayer wheel by saving an image of the Sanskrit, and I I apologize if I'm not pronouncing this right, Om Mane Padme Hum, allowing for thousands more revolutions per minute than a hand can deliver. The question you raised about where the use of technological prayer wheels becomes problematic is an interesting one. And there I think we ask the question of, like, can you just write a computer program that simulates the turning of a wheel without even having a picture if it's just like a, you know, a program that executes in the background right. on a computer? Uh, she, she goes on, she says, as prayer and prana is both unquantifiable and unverifiable, we can't see if it is indeed more effective Rather, what is important is the intention of the believer, the desire to do as much good as possible and to bring their faith into every area of their life. Physical prayer wheels can be said to act as advertising for Buddhism or one's faith, and a moving GIF image of one on your blog or website does the same thing in encouraging faith. There was even a Tibetan Buddhism blessing in cyberspace delivered in the early 90s, where four monks prayed in front of a laptop, sanctifying the space. Cornell University has been part of a project to make 3D mandalas existing digitally in cyberspace, and these can be navigated by camera within the program. The Dalai Lama enthusiastically tried this out and laughed when he drove the camera into a digital statue of the Buddha. (laughs) It seems like the appropriate response. Right. Uh, the reason for Buddhism's acceptance of cyberspace as providing legitimate space for spiritual engagement may be because of their dualistic understanding of reality, with consciousness and matter being separate. Take a trip to Second Life, and you'll also encounter Christian churches. I thought this was really interesting. I've actually uh, attended one of these. Really? Yeah. I, well, I was in a physical church, but then the uh, individual giving the sermon um gave it in Second Life, and we got to view this uh, on the screen. It was, oh, it was pretty, pretty wow. fascinating. That's really cool. Uh, but, yeah, so she says, uh, you'll encounter Christian churches, Jewish synagogues, and Hindu temples available to visit, some with instructions on clothing for one's avatar before entering. Mm. You can also engage your avatar in meditation and yogic practices on Second Life. This asks some very interesting questions about the validity of experience online, as I assume that while my avatar is meditating, I cannot be. One can even receive virtual communion on Second Life. This seems ludicrous at first, but when we consider that transubstantiation is purely metaphorical, allowing us to become closer to our Godhead, an avatar acting as a digitally mediated metaphor for our mind imbibing a metaphor for Christ isn't too hard to understand. It all asks some very difficult questions about embodiment, what it means to be human, and the nature of mind-slash-consciousness. This really is a fascinating and complex issue, mostly because religion is an innate human drive, and in examining how we engage with religion in cyberspace, we can use it almost as a litmus test to assess how we feel about the validity of experiences online. 
And then she actually attached her dissertation, which I haven't had a chance to read yet, but I would really like to get into. And, and maybe at some point we could get a chance to share that with our listeners if uh, if she's interested. Yeah, you, most uh, I, I don't know how it works at her university, but most universities publish dissertations now as uh, open access documents. So mm-hmm. perhaps we can get a URL from Jillian and share it with everybody. Yeah. And anyway, she finishes up a thanks if you made it to the end of this long ramble. I just get so excited when I encounter someone discussing the subject. Much love from the west of Scotland. Thanks for all the great work and keep it up. You're too kind, Jillian. And your email was awesome. That I was loved this. Yeah, so many, uh, I mean, so many wonderful things. Uh, the uh, mention of mandalas and you know the virtual spaces of mandalas. I'd love to do an episode mm. just on mandalas at some point in the future. In fact, I, I think Jillian, you should take this subject and do an entire podcast series of your own about it. Yeah. Oh, it certainly sounds like something large enough that you could. Oh yeah. You could do a whole series on it. Well, you know, Robert and I were just originally planning on doing one episode about technology and religion, but then we got into it and realized we've been talking for like two and a half. Hours. I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember because you went in the studio and didn't come out for a really long time, and I yeah. and I thought, what happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a topic, and we just only dipped our toes in it, right? right? I yeah. Mean, there's a, there's a lot there, so yeah, it could easily be a podcast unto itself. So wait, before we move on, transubstantiation is purely metaphorical. That's well, not my understanding. That of it. depends, I think, depends on which your, church. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, the idea there, if you're not familiar, is that I think in uh, in the Mass, if people in the Christian Mass are receiving the, the, yeah, the, the bread and the wine, transubstantiation is the belief that the bread and wine is be- becomes the body of, and blood of Christ. Right. When it's – at what point? I don't I, – maybe when it's blessed by the priest. I'm okay. not quite sure. Okay. Uh, but anyway, I think – so some people – would probably take that literally and say, yes, in some sense mm-hmm. now it is literally actually the body and blood of Jesus. Right. And then others, I think, would take a more metaphorical approach to it. You know, that that email was so good. We actually have another one from uh, Jillian here. She says, I'd like to point your attention to another interesting comparison. You mentioned UFOs. I'd just like to point out that Jung postulated that UFOs are now filling the role of heavenly, omniscient, and powerful beings left by traditional godheads that have been eradicated as our scientific knowledge has grown. They fit the same circular mandala shape as recognized by Jung, as well as the likes of Joseph Campbell and J.G. Frazier. Artist Susan Hiller explored this in her compelling piece, Witness, in which small saucer-shaped speakers were suspended on cords from the ceiling in a large rectangle, with a space left for navigating in the shape of a crucifix. From the speakers, the viewer could listen closely to whispered confession-like reports of individuals who claimed to have encountered UFOs. Adding another layer, the work was displayed in a church in England, alluding to the fact that where once we saw angels, we now see advanced scientific beings. Of course, Jung argues that this being we see in a UFO is just a projection from our unconscious mind, revealing a desire for what he calls individuation, a seeking of wholeness, to be close to an aspirational figure. And this desire manifests in the circular mandala shape as seen in halos, ghostly orbs, Navajo sand designs, etc. Anyway, thanks for reading again. I promise this is the last one. No. Cheers again. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't I, have to be. These are so great. Yeah, they're quite good. In, in fact, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to hear a podcast from Jillian now. Or, yeah. Or also, like, I'm fascinated by uh, what her dissertation might be about. This yeah. Is, this is a really interesting stuff. Yeah. So I think she's referring to the part in the second part of the uh, of the techno religion podcast where we talked about the UFO cults, yes. like Raelianism, mm-hmm. which. 
you know, they, they might not want to be called a UFO cult, actually. But what you know, they're they're a religion that incorporates the technology of supposed encounters with alien beings. Where, in fact, it's it's a quite literal replacement of God in in the writings of Rael, their their leader, right? Because he tells mm-hmm. the story of how the aliens went through the Bible with him and said, okay, this part here where it says God did that, actually what happened is the aliens used a, you know, nuclear powered radio to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, the the whole bit with aliens was uh, was really interesting, especially when you got into the specifics of uh, of like what Satan was doing uh, right. as a uh, like cloning engineer. Yeah, I can't remember. There's like Satan and Lucifer in the in the Raelian take. Is that one? They're two separate entities. One worked on on, on Earth in the cloning facility, and the other one was uh, an anti Earth activist on the home <laughs> planet. It's wonderful stuff. Uh, here's one that we actually got about our podcast about the science of coincidence, the one Robert and I did there about uh, methods of analyzing coincidences to see whether they're actually statistically interesting or not. So Zara writes in and says, hi, guys, love the show. I just finished listening to the episode about coincidence, and it was one of my favorites. I'm always trying to tell people about the law of large numbers, but then I'm a math person. Well, congratulations on that, Zara. I am not, but I wish I were. Uh, she goes on, I especially liked the bit about only needing a group of 23 people to find two that have the same birthday. I shared it with my fiancé as soon as I heard it, and he laughed at me and told me I'm a geek, guilty as charged. Don't we have a brain stuff episode about this? I believe yeah, we do. Ben it, does. Yeah, so if you um, check out our YouTube channel for, for brain stuff, which is one of the shows that Joe and I write for brain stuff, uh, mm-hmm. uh, listeners outside of this show, uh, and uh, but yeah, Ben Boland did an episode on that very topic. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Zara goes on. She says, anyways, I wanted to share my own coincidence. The day I was born, May 16th, what a coincidence. You want to know a coincidence? Yeah. That's the day I was born. Really? Whoa. That's my birthday. Wow. So I was born on, uh, I mean, July 16th. Yeah, and I was born October 16th. What? We're all 16s? Wow. Synchronicity. How does but, that police song go? But anyway. Zara, too. Yeah. So, uh, so Zara was born on May 16th. What a coincidence. She says, my dad was wearing a T-shirt from an old radio station in California, KMEL 106. His best friend worked at the station before I was born. Well, wouldn't you know it, I was born at 106 in the morning. The only thing that would have made it better is if it had been an AM station. But no coincidence is perfect. How true that is, Sarah. Uh, She says, thanks for keeping us all educated and entertained. You're welcome. Thank you for writing in. Yeah, that, that's a well. Thank you for that feedback. It it also brings to mind that we did receive an email uh, that we didn't read, but it had to do with where, like, the coincidence and the numerology of our placement in iTunes ranking in relation to right. Glenn Beck's podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I didn't quite, I didn't completely understand it. I'm gonna need some clarifications on the the points. I, I'm sure there are invisible threads between us and Glenn Beck, though. Yeah. Invisible. Not that I was aware that he had a podcast until just now. Uh, okay, so this one is from Dave, who wrote a message to us through Facebook. Again, we're Blow the Mind on Facebook. Uh, follow us there. By the way, we don't just post our own stuff there. We, we share a lot of content that we find throughout the day as we're doing research. You oh, know, yeah. All kinds of weird Breaking stuff. Breaking science, we weird links. Yeah. Uh, all sorts, all sorts of good content. Yeah. yeah. Monsters. Monsters definitely are in there. Uh, so Dave says, hi guys, you probably don't have time to reply or maybe even read this in entire, 
in its entirety. Boy, Dave, are you in for a surprise. (laughs) Nonetheless, I thought I should send you both a message just to let you know how much I love your podcast. I've been an avid podcast listener for a few years when I stumbled across yours. Until then, I've been listening to SGU and The Reality Check. When I started listening to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, I was impressed with the format of the show and the sharing of science was done in a fun, never belittling way. I really enjoy the rapport between both of you and look forward to my time so I can listen to a few Stuff to Blow Your Mind episodes. I'm currently going through your backlog and I'm about halfway through a little more than The Seven Deadlies. This is a series that you did with Julia? Yeah, we did one on each of The Seven Deadly Sins. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, I just felt compelled to drop you this message just to let you know that I really enjoy and appreciate the show and wanted to thank you both and everyone else involved. That's us, Joe. (laughs) For putting together such a great show on a regular basis. Thanks. And then he typed out smile emoticon. I like that. That's clever. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Uh, thanks for writing in. Uh, and yeah, this sounds like another individual making their way through the uh, back catalog uh, of episodes. And you'll find all of those episodes at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. If you ever want to just check out, you know, go to the search there and just see what we have. Yeah, all the podcasts, all the blog posts, all the videos, everything. It's, you know, I, I'm not just saying this because I'm on the show now. Like, when you actually go and engage with, with that site, like, there's just a tremendous wealth of material that Robert and his various co-hosts over the years have produced. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Okay, we've got a, just a couple more for you guys. This one is from Sashank. Sashank writes in and says, Hey guys, just heard your podcast this morning. Lovely stuff about the intersection of technology and religion. More about a techno-religion podcast. Uh, Sashank says, I had a few thoughts I wanted to share when I thought about technology and religion. The first thing that came to mind was how many modern cult-like religious movements were centered around technological profits. I speak primarily, of course, about the mighty Apple. (laughs) I'm sure you'd agree that Apple fandom is rather religious about their allegiance, and it was Steve Jobs who really inspired this cult following. I've thought about this quite often, and my guess was that Jobs really fulfilled all the criteria we look for in someone to worship slash follow. When we seek religious leaders, we look for someone who has a hold over the masses and unites people based on a belief or ideology, someone who disseminates information, communication, and social media, someone who tells us a prescribed way to do things, and someone who can empower people by giving them the tools to do said things many of which you guys mentioned with brilliant examples. And Jobs seemed to put his products in this light. He made it clear that the technology he was selling wasn't simply a tool, it was a way of life. Today, Apple fans lament the death of Jobs. Jobs. (laughs) Uh, While still performing their annual rituals of watching WWDC lining up for iPhones, and submitting almost fanatically to the Apple doctrine. And I think that is something we often crave for as humans, to be given direction, purpose, prescribed rituals to perform in return for affiliation, belonging to a unified cult with a shared ideology, and of course, that edge over the other guys. And then Sashank links to a couple of articles covering phenomena similar to what he's been describing here. Once again, thanks for the great podcast, guys. Totally helps me wake up every day. Well, thank you so much for that email, Sashank. So uh, do you guys remember the Big Brother commercial that Apple did in the 80s? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this is what his uh, his letter is making me think of, is that it was sort of prescient in its own way. Hmm. I feel like they might have done like a, a parody version of that recently. Oh, there have been a number another? of different parodies yeah. over the years. I know there was one on Futurama. That oh, was pretty, okay. Pretty okay. Uh, nice. Yeah, but certainly, yeah, the 
Um, and there was a book that I read in the nineties called Microsurfs. It was about sort of Silicon Valley startups and, and, and some of the people who worked out there and, and their relationship to Steve Jobs was very much <laughs> described the way that he was describing it as he was almost like an entity. Yeah. I, I thought it was funny how in the email it suddenly, it wasn't Steve Jobs every time it became Jobs. Mm. Like Jobs is the name of like a Babylonian deity. You've got <laughs> Baal and you've got uh, Marduk and you've got Jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Jobs. Jobs, the, uh, what the, you know, the, the winged lion. <laughs> ah. Yeah. Now I'm picturing yeah, the winged lion with, with Steve Jobs' head. Yeah. yeah. And he read that With a bite way. out of the side of it <laughs> and a single leaf. <laughs> All right, and here's our uh, last bit of listener mail. Uh, this one comes in from Facebook uh, listener Good Vibes. Good Vibes writes, I'm curious to know your thoughts on the existence or non-existence of extraterrestrials. Given thoughts and theories proposed by Eric Von Duncan and other supporters of their existence, do you think it is plausible that they do exist? I'm really at a, at a loss here. I personally want to believe, but the only evidence I have to go on is theories put forth in photos and videos which may be real or not. Well, Robert, uh, actually recorded an episode of Brain Stuff, our video series I mentioned earlier, that I wrote the script for, along with, uh, I believe, you, you, it was with Kristen Conger, oh, about yeah. this very topic, about was whether it, aliens exist or not. Was it the Drake Equation? It may be. I only vaguely remember. It, it's been over a year since we did it. I don't believe the Drake Equation came into it, but okay. we did talk about you know the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Uh, and specifically the Goldilocks zone concept mm-hmm. of the, the, you know, uh, there, there's this particular zone in between a star and, and where a planet resides in order for the atmosphere to potentially, uh, host life. So, yes or no, extraterrestrials? Oh, I definitely think yes. Definitely? Mm-hmm. Intelligent? Spacefaring? Yeah, I'll go okay. with that. Have they visited Earth? No. Okay. Will they visit Earth? Yes, but not in our understanding of time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joe, how about you? Oh, yeah, I think it's, I mean, well, it's kind of presumptuous to say either way because we, we don't, there are so many probabilities involved that we just don't even have a number for. Like, what is the probability that abiogenesis occurs on a, on a habitable planet? I don't know what that, I mean, it might be near one or it might be one in, 10 trillion. Right. I just don't know. And I think even scientists don't necessarily know the answer to that. But my hunch is that, yes, there's plenty of life out there in the universe, but we may very well never encounter it ever. Okay. My take is that my take kind of varies. Like there was a time in um, junior high where I was scared to death of alien abduction. Yeah. It was pretty like this unsolved mysteries had had gotten into my head. We're talking about like early 90s. Here, yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. Me too. And I was just X-Files sure that they were era. out there. That yep. You just look up into the, the night sky and they would just suck you up, you know? Uh-huh. Um, so I feel like I'm. there's definitely a strong uh, uh, tendency uh, in myself now to just dismiss extraterrestrials. But I sometimes wonder if a part of that is was like a defensive mechanism to that fear I used to have. Yeah. So I found a reason to eradicate that fear through... Uh, yeah, through you know logic and common sense, but uh, but I still I, I still think there is life out there somewhere. I don't know. I'm I'm not sure it's necessarily spacefaring now, or if it ever will be. But sometimes I do sort of think that lay there in bed at night and I sort of imagine some sort of a slime mold on another sure, world. Sure. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, that yeah. That's where I fall. F- 
certainly. And, and I guess I would say, too, that this seems like the perfect stuff to blow your mind question to me because this show is all about sort of the wonder and awe, I think, that, like, science brings to us as people, you know. And, and that's what this says to me as well, too, is trying to use science or just your imagination to uh, theorize whether extraterrestrial life exists or not is one of those wondrous moments that I think this show is great for. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I can't remember where this quote comes from. Somebody said this, and I heard it. It's that when you think about extraterrestrial life, either there is extraterrestrial life or there isn't, and no matter which option is true, that's mind-blowing. Yeah. Right. Like, the yep. fact that we're alone in the universe is scary and awe-inspiring and the fact that there's other life out there is scary and awe-inspiring totally yeah scary and awe-inspiring that's what we go for here so uh, <laughs> hey uh, we want to thank the uh, the robot for coming online not destroying anybody um, really just pleased that that uh, machine is up and running so it looks like the sauce coming out again. yeah okay well we better wrap we better wrap it up right um Hey, uh, if you want uh, to learn more about our podcast, check out old episodes, whatever. Head over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes, all the podcasts, all the videos, all the content. Links out to some of those social media accounts as well. Mm-hmm. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. And if you wanted to write us an email that will be featured in a future episode, a listener mail episode, Arnie might just spit out your uh, your your message to us. Write to us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.